Welcome. You are listening to Park Avenue Podcasts, and this is Rabbi Elliot Cosgrove. While it's always better to hear it live, this is a place to be to catch the music, sermons, and select programs of Park Avenue Synagogue. If you like what you are hearing or want to learn more about the community, please check out our website at www.pasyn.org. Enjoy our latest installment. we talk about is a professional development podcast for educators who are teaching Jewish things in Jewish schools. We're your hosts, Jen Stern-Granowitz and Aaron Beezer, Jewish educators from New York City. Jen, I have to admit, there's a part of me that thinks today's topic is so hard. I don't even want to talk about it. It's so hard. I can't. Am I overreacting? So yes, the topic we chose is how we talk about prayer Difficult topic. Agreed. But we chose it ourselves. So what in particular is difficult for you? It's just so hard. I mean, the truth is grownups do not level with kids on this. Whether you're in a day school or a Hebrew school or even a summer camp, because everybody thinks summer camps are doing this great, but let's, you know, even if you're at a summer camp or even if you are a grownup in an actual synagogue, Prayer is hard, and I think it's always being set up to fail. Okay, I'm totally with you, but tell us more. Okay, this is not a new problem. Prayer is hard because you basically need this very dry, very rote skill of becoming fluent in a foreign language, which is like one category of skills. And then at the same time, you need this totally other skill of being like meditative and mindful and grateful and connecting with something larger than yourself. And that's really, really hard. And those two skills are totally diametrically opposed in how you're trained to do that and how we think about what those two experiences look like. I'm just going to talk about teaching prayer for a second. I think it's an impossible task. You can't make anybody happy. Everybody is unhappy, right? You're either making some parents happy that you're teaching like every line of the ashray. Okay. So if you don't know what the ashray is, it's a prayer. Okay, just go with me on that one, all right? So you're making the kids miserable because, let's be honest, no one enjoys learning every line of the ashray. It's like brushing your teeth. You know you have to do it, and it's even good for you, but you're like, oh, please, no, not every single line of the ashray. Or you make the kids happy by doing, like, one line of the ashray to a funky hip-hop melody or something, and then you make some of the parents happy because they don't actually care if the kids learn every single line of the ashray as long as they don't complain. And then at the same time, maybe you believe that prayer fulfills a legal commandment, and so over the age of 13, your students have to pray, so they don't even really need to enjoy it. It's just more important that they say every single word. So, yes, you have laid out a lot, um, maybe all of the push and pull in this educational situation. And it's really hard to do it all, right? To learn how to say the prayers, learn why the prayers are said, and on top of that, enjoy singing them in a really fun and engaging way. It can often feel like we're setting everyone up to fail. The teachers, the parents, especially the kids. Teaching about prayer is a massive undertaking. And a big part of the conversation about prayer are the goals of the institution, 
at Park Avenue Synagogue, one of our pillars is that we are a Beit Tefillah, a house of prayer. And one of our goals in the congregational school is that kids learn how to pray so they can be part of this central function of the synagogue. So we want our students to have this knowledge base, to feel empowered, to pick up a siddur and pray and to perform this ritual that is so core to the synagogue. Why do you give prayer so much real estate, especially, you know, knowing that it's just not particularly fun? In my perspective, not everything in life or in Jewish education is thrilling. You can't have the fun educational experiences without the foundational knowledge, or at least in order for the experience and the content to really stick, you first need that knowledge base. So the content, let's say, of Aleph Bet Yoga, for example, doesn't stick. It might be fun, but it doesn't stick if that is the only way a child is learning Hebrew letters. You also need to open a Hebrew grammar. There are just some eat your spinach moments that I don't think can be avoided. And the hope is that the knowledge allows our students to access Judaism and Jewish community. So oh, there's a lot there, Aaron. What do you think? Yeah, I hear you on the accessibility point, And I think that's really important. And it can be really hard to access Jewish prayer spaces if you can't read Hebrew or you don't know the tunes or whatever. And, you know, we can all agree that we want Jews to feel welcome and come to a synagogue. Um, but, but a lot of Jewish people are not going to synagogues to pray. So why are we spending so much time and energy preparing them to use a skill they're going to use once a year if they're coming to shul on synagogue on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur or, or once in a lifetime if they're learning these prayers for their bar and bat mitzvah? Why are we spending so much time doing this? Shouldn't we be doing something else with this real estate of time? So I agree with you. There are plenty of Jews who are not going to come to a synagogue, come to synagogue to pray, come to synagogue at all. But for those who are part of a synagogue and for a child to spend, let's say, six years in a Hebrew school, part of that time coming to the synagogue on Shabbat morning, it seems like we have not succeeded if that child cannot pick up a siddur and participate in Shabbat services. Well, okay, then if you're going to do it and we know it's important and not quite sure what the most effective, um, certainly the most engaging way to go about doing it. So let's bring on the wizard of Park Avenue. We have the expert on teaching a leading prayer and engaging children all at the same time. My children's favorite superhero. Jen's going to do the real introduction. That's just a teaser for all of you at home. Agreed. With the informal part of Josh Rosenberg's bio, our guest today is Josh Rosenberg, our cantorial fellow and primary music educator at Park Avenue Synagogue. For those of you who have never or are not able to see Josh in action, Josh, your title doesn't do your amazing work justice. Josh teaches music and prayer to learners from birth to B'nai Mitzvah at Park Avenue Synagogue. And when not singing, praying, or playing guitar, which I know takes up a lot of his time, Josh can be found cooking or petting his cat. And Josh, I just want to say I have both personally and professionally learned so much from you and honored to have you here um, to talk about how we talk about and teach prayer. I'm also honored. Thank you so much, Jen and Aaron, for uh, for bringing me on. I don't usually get to leave the trenches so much and zoom out and like really think about this stuff from 10,000 feet, as we always like to say. So thank you for the opportunity. Amazing. So we have some questions for you. What are the elements of teaching prayer that are really working for you right now? The things that are going well, honestly, right now 
are the creating experiences. What we've been able to do on Zoom and on live stream in different situations is creating very powerful, very impactful, interactive broadcast television. The act of customizing exactly how much interaction to have at any given moment, the ability to, to pace and create exactly the right experience for every learner in every space. There is a difference between creating an experience and inviting participation into that experience. The, the creating of an experience might be performative, but it's not performing. I may be the one creating the most sound in a Zoom room. I may be the one creating the most flow in a Zoom room, right? I'm not having every kid unmute and say the ashray with me at the same time. But that doesn't mean that there, there isn't a, an emotion being generated, a, a vibe being created, for lack of a better word. A mentor of mine once said, you can be completely engrossed and completely involved in a production of Hamilton, but you don't want to go jump up on the stage. You're watching. That, so the creating of the stage and of the experience we have, um, I, I don't want to claim to be the only one, we have some experts par excellence in this world. Um, and it's sort of the next step that I believe that a lot of us are struggling with. The nuance there of the performing and the performative. Can you go back to that for a second for us? Serving as the shaliach. I'm literally like, I'm literally being the messenger of prayer. The idea is, yes, I'm being performative in a way. I'm using my voice, I'm using my emotion, I'm using my guitar, I'm using my facial expression, I'm using my body to hopefully elicit feelings. And the feelings can be joy, the feelings can be sadness about the sad parts of our history, and it's performative. I'm creating something with myself. It's not necessarily collective in any given moment, especially on Zoom. But what that doesn't mean is that I'm performing. I'm not saying, here is the hashkivenu, watch it on a screen, k-bye. Here is the shema, we watch it on a screen, k-bye. I'm using my performing skills that every leader has, whether they're a rabbi or cantor, they're all using it at any time, whether they think they are or not, to create a collective experience. On the flip side, what are the components that are making teaching prayer difficult? One of the biggest difficulties that we as a people right now are having is, is interactivity and true authentic dialogue with multiple groups. It's a lot easier to kind of break the molds that that might exist in leader follower flow is I can be, you know, using my performative skills, like I mentioned, to create a moment, and then immediately transition into a discussion with very little with very little time lost, and immediately segue where that discussion leads into the next moment of prayer that we're creating. Because in a classroom that back and forth is so much smoother, and even not just the back and forth, the side to side, the discussions with your partner, all of these things are just so much easier in person. Um, and while an online platform provides a lot more flexibility in how we create experiences, the ability to smoothly transition between a leader and followers, for lack of a better word, to authentically participate without the awkward muting, unmuting, breakout rooms, like all of these things take time and take away from the flow to um, any sort of prayerful moment. The, the difficulty is creating meaningful interaction. That's what it is. So the way I heard you lay out, this is how I do a, a prayer session and I lead a prayer and then I have a discussion and you sort of said that like it was very simple, but I feel like that actually is something very hard to create. So could you talk through a little bit like how you create that, the prayer space where you're both praying and teaching prayer? I think what it really boils down to 
is knowing exactly what you're teaching at any given moment. There are the words, there's the the rote movements, the choreography, there's that part, and then there's sort of the deeper meaning and what it means to our people and what it means to you and what it means and all of that. And the, the, the real struggle is you can't be teaching both of those at the same time. At, at one moment of time and space, you can't be teaching both of those. You can be focusing on one and the other one you might hope comes along, but you really can only focus on one of those. My goal is, is I'm not spending five minutes on teaching some new Hebrew words and then engaging in a 10 minute discussion about those words. Because at that point we've tuned out, there's too much at once of something new and it's ricocheted off the atmosphere. It's hopefully a prayer that they're familiar with. It's hopefully a, a either a text or a melody or a combo or um, even just a moment, like the moment before the Amidah, for example. Um, They're familiar with that moment. They're familiar with what that feels like. So we can take a second, blow it up, like, hey, what's actually going on here? Hey, remember what we just prayed? Let's think about what does this have to do with Judaism? Why are we doing this? And then because it's part of a flow that we've created over weeks and weeks and weeks, we can jump right back in. So you've used two answers, the word flow. So can you come back, tell us a little more about what you mean about flow? The idea of flow for me is it's creating routine. It's scaffolding for success. And so when you create flow in a tefillah session or in a lesson plan or in anything you do with any group of any age, the idea is one thing naturally goes to the other. And if you have to arbitrarily say, all right, we're done with this 30-minute block. Now we're going to move on to this 30-minute block. Not only the learners need to completely reorient themselves as to what they're now learning, but it seems arbitrary. So, you know, in a perfect world, and I know no world we have is perfect, the Judaics we were learning that day would flow immediately into the Hebrew that we were studying that day because it's the Hebrew related to the Judaics. And then in Tefillah, we'd be learning a musical setting of that text that they learn. And, you know, it's all the flow is the natural progression of learning. And for me, within like, let's say a 20 minute block, my goal is to create flow in in a variety of ways. There's literally the matbeah of our fixed prayer service of this flows to this, flows to this, flows to this. And, And one of my goals is that we can pause in the middle and we know exactly where we peck back up because for weeks and weeks, Micha Mocha comes before Hashkivenu. The learning doesn't bring attention to itself. The, the less transitioning I have to do and the more things naturally go from one to the other, the more authentic and beautiful the learning is. Let's start with transitions. Can you give us some examples of really great ways to transition? So I guess one of, one of the best ways that I found to transition naturally is just kind of doing it. So I, this, this sounds simple, but it's actually, it's important. So the idea is we've finished a moment of prayer. And then instead of saying, and now we're about to do this, instead of labeling it, we experience what it is we did. And this might be the first time we've ever experienced this. But instead of drawing attention to its newness, instead of labeling it before we've had a chance to experience it, one of the most effective ways to create flow, in my opinion, is to, to just leap in And then in the middle, bring attention and start labeling. There's a new experience to be had somewhere, and it's about to happen. Instead of setting up a mastery objective, saying, we're about to do this, you're expecting this, we're doing this, I found a lot of success in a prayer setting of leaping before looking, starting a new moment, and then in the middle go, oh, what was that we just did? And then kind of in in, in the middle, bring attention to it, label, because then 
the flow is there because we're in the middle of it. We're not done with the new moment yet. And so then we just keep going with this new moment. And I find another big transition for me is talking as little as possible and using my body and my singing voice as much as possible. Singing what we're about to do, simply chanting the page number we're on, simply changing the slide without saying what it is, which brings attention that something new is happening, without stopping and bringing attention to it. The transitions for me are all about, about keeping the forward momentum. And if you have to stop, because of course you do when you're learning, you can't just go, 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 stopping in the middle rather than before. Can we hear your three favorite ways to quiet a room? And we want to hear it. Like we want to imagine that it's an after-school setting of really rowdy, let's say like fifth and sixth graders. I don't know if like those of you who are listening have nightmares about fifth and sixth graders. Some people do. And I know that Josh, you really love this age group. So I want to hear like your best way to create that flow, to create that transition, to quiet a room and we can just pretend that Jen and I are the loudest, rowdiest audience of fifth and sixth graders that you've ever heard. So I'm going to give you two like demonstrations in the moment. But the first thing I want to say is I've said this like since I went to music school to learn how to be a music teacher, the best classroom management is a good lesson plan. And being engaging from the start is the first step of classroom management and the first way to quiet a room is to have a room worth being quiet for. Whenever kids are being rowdy, for lack of a better word, I always consider it my fault first. I really do because I said I didn't create as engaging a lesson plan as possible. And then of course, now you go on to the other thing. So for me, it's quiet yourself, slow your roll. There's always a desire, especially with fifth and sixth graders, to try to outpower them whether it's loudness, whether it's clapping, whether it's, you want to be bigger than them. You want to like, look, I am a bigger leader. You should be quiet for me. There's a lot of that. And I have found in my, for me that, you know, there are sixth graders who are physically stronger than me. I can't pretend at all. And so I found that modeling the quiet and the slowness that you want to have in the room has often helped. And it takes longer. You don't shock them into quiet but eventually you lower the temperature of the room. You know, so I'll start, you know, so we're gonna take just a second. And like, they're still talking the whole time I'm doing this, it's not silent. We're gonna take a second and you just literally model the calm that you wanna see in the room. And it won't be silent instantly and it may not be silent completely, but what you're doing is lowering the temperature rather than raising it. The other is slow your roll. There's a bunch of talking and I'll go, so I'm not exactly sure. And so like, I'm literally, I'm just slowing my tone. I'm slowing my, I want to resist the idea of you clap them into submission or you shout them into submission or you raise the temperature. It's about lowering because whether they know they want it or not, the kids want the lower temperature. So we're going to ask that you leave us and our listeners with a reflection question. So this will help deepen our learning from our conversation today. So Josh, do you have that question? In your own personal prayer practice, what purpose does language serve? Do you pray with words at all? Why or why not? Wow. What would be an example of someone not praying with words? Maybe this is my own bias and my complete 
obsession and fixation and fascination with words, hence this podcast. What is that? I'm, I'm just, I'm curious. Go, go with me on that. I'm going to make you answer your own question. What does that even mean? For me personally, my prayer comes through words, but not their direct meaning. When I'm really in a prayerful state, when I'm not just doing, when I'm not just performing, when I'm not just teaching, when I'm really praying for myself, the words meaning directly is not what I'm thinking. The words I use as a conduit for a meditative practice about the concepts of peace or about the concept of, you know, thank God I get to go to bed and wake up alive. The Hebrew allows me to get into a meditative state. The sounds, the vowels, the consonants allow me to remove my mind from this moment, go out of my body for a second in a way that I think if I were praying in English, I wouldn't be able to. Wow. That's really beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Jen, what is a takeaway that you are taking from this conversation? All right. I'm I'm still formulating the takeaway because it came from what Josh just said at the end and Aaron, what you said in the beginning, right? So there was this dichotomy we set up about the Hebrew, the Hebrew skill and the meditative element. And I think, Josh, you just linked those two for me, right? That you, you the Hebrew skill takes you to the meditation, how yes, that's a dichotomy. And also they're deeply connected, which is why which is why, for one example, we teach them in the same space, right? In the Hebrew school, we teach the Hebrew and the prayer, even though sometimes they feel like they do not go together. I think as sort of thinking about it as a conduit from one to the other is like, is very powerful to me and very useful. There were also some, a few other words you used that I just love about flow, leap before looking, to lead by example, to lower the temperature and not to raise it. Erin, now it's your turn. I'm thinking about slowing my own role because I am definitely a go big or go home, leave it all on the field kind of energy in the room. And so I'm going to try to embody that when I am leading. The next time, the very next time I have a group of children in front of me, I'm going to slow my role and I'm going to think about you and your flow. I think the performative and the performance piece I think is really challenging to me. I think, I think as a leader, as a prayer, sometimes a prayer leader, sometimes a prayer, I think we struggle with that dichotomy of the performative and the performance. And I don't quite know why we are performing this, if not for the actual experience. And I think we all need to keep working at it. And so we'll get there so that each of our learners are able to perform this ritual with us in a way that is authentic and meaningful to them, wherever it is that they are in their Jewish journeys. And I think that's really the, that's the challenge. That's the, the goal that we've laid out for ourselves in this work. Josh, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be able to reflect and learn with you. So thank you for joining us. We want to hear from you. If you're planning a lesson or there's something that's on your mind, tell us about it. We want this podcast to be useful to you, our fellow educators.
Thank you for listening to Park Avenue Podcasts, a place to be to catch the music, sermons, and select programs of Park Avenue Synagogue. If you like what you are hearing or want to learn more about the community, please check out our website at www.pasyn.org. See you in shul.